Clearly, I am not Danny DeVito, uh, but I'm your host, Daniel Cohen, uh, and I'd like to wish everyone a happy holidays. Uh, joining me, as always, my trusty partner, the Max Shrek to my penguin, broadcasting live from the Shrek Masquerade Ball. It is podcast editor of thepopbreak.com, Alex Marcus. Hey, Dan, I just want to start off by saying that if you try to blackmail me on this podcast, I'm going to throw you from a taller w- window. Very, very well. Okay, very good to know. All right. Well, it is just the two of us today uh, as we ease into the holidays. Uh, but don't worry, we still have a great topic. Uh, no rankings today. Uh, we'll be back with another rankings episode soon enough that I can promise you. Uh, if you haven't yet, definitely check out our last rankings episode with Michael T. Ford. It was a great one. Uh, we ranked the Bat family members, Batman's allies. And uh, one funny thing I just have to mention as I re listen to that podcast, and uh, I'm putting Alex on the spot here. Uh, if you go back and listen towards the end of our Joseph Gordon-Levitt discussion, uh, it's very clear that Alex desperately wanted to move on from the John Blake slash Robin discussion. Uh, so, <laughs> Alex, I, I promise you, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's John Blake slash Robin is not the topic today. Well, he's already come up more than I'm comfortable with. <laughs> All right, there we go. No, we will move on. We'll move on to our actual topic today. Uh, our actual topic today is a simple one. Uh Throughout these last few podcasts, you've heard us sing the praises of Batman Returns. So as it's Christmas uh, and as it's actually the 30 year anniversary of this movie, I can't believe that. Um, F it. We're just going to talk Batman Returns today. That's it. That's the topic. So if you love Batman Returns like we do, this is the episode you've been waiting for. Uh, And I know that there are many like us who love this movie and some who don't. Uh, And that brings us head on into this Batman Returns really is a movie that has become a point of real fascination for people. For me, it's my second favorite Batman film. But aside from that, it's a movie that's firmly in my top 50 of all time favorite films. So I really like this movie. Excuse me. So I really like this movie. Um, We've talked about it in the past. There is just something about this movie. And I think a lot of people feel that way. Uh, But that wasn't always the case. I'm sure there are plenty of better examples of this, but... I can't think of a movie that has had more of a reinterpretation, re-envisioning, you know, reanalysis, whatever the word is. Uh, but bottom line, it's become a movie that people really like to discuss for whatever reason. Was it ahead of its time? Was it misunderstood back in 1992? I don't know. We'll try and answer some of those questions today. Uh, when it comes to the reviews back in 1992, we can just rewind the clock a bit. They weren't bad reviews. They were mixed. The movie did well financially. It broke the opening weekend record at that time. Uh, But it was a far step below the first film. And I'm just going to read the numbers right here. The original 89 Batman did just over $251 million domestically. uh, Worldwide, just over $411 million. And you got to understand, in 1989, like, that was ridiculous. Uh, So, I mean, everyone knows the original Batman was absurdly successful. I'm I'm not breaking any news here. All right. Now let's go to Batman Returns. Batman Returns did just over $162 million domestically. 
and just over $266 million worldwide. So, you know, numbers at the time, but think about it. It barely got over the original's domestic take worldwide. Uh, it was still good for the third highest grossing film of that year domestically behind Aladdin and Home Alone 2 Lost in New York. But the real legacy of this movie when it came out and you can find plenty of YouTube videos and analysis on this uh, is that the movie was way too dark and weird for people. It was not received well by audiences, but in particular, it was so dark that people really attacked it for being too scary for kids. Uh, and then there was this whole fiasco, I think, with McDonald's not wanting to release toys or something. Uh, the bottom <laughs> yes. line. The, yeah. The, the, the consensus is that the dark nature of the film probably hurt the merchandising. And so, look, that combined with the downtick in box office is why Warner Brothers went so drastically different with Batman Forever and the rest is history. Uh, now, Alex, uh, you're younger than me, but I'm sure you've read and are aware of how this movie was received when it came out. So I'm going to start here with you. With all that said, here's my first question. Why do you think Batman Returns has gotten this positive revival, positive reception or re-envisioning, as I put it, in recent years? Well, I think the easiest way that I understand it is that this movie is like explicitly not for kids in a way that's crazy when you watch it in retrospect. Like, it's no wonder that uh, McDonald's uh, pulled the Happy Meal toys at the last minute for this. This movie is so horny. It's like the horniest superhero movie I've ever seen, I think. And that includes like the R-rated superhero movies that we've seen that have like explicit sex scenes in it. Like this movie is so like, I mean, <laughs> the 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 Eternals movie that came out last year got a lot of uh, headlines for being the first Marvel movie to have a sex scene in it. Uh, this movie is so much dirtier and raunchier and sexier and hornier than than anything that happened in the Eternals. That's for sure. Um, not what the Eternals was going for, but it's just wild how adult this movie is, and it's adult in a very particular way that I think is much more acceptable for a modern audience than a 1992 audience because adults in 1992 were not as conditioned to want kind of a grown-up version of that thing that they loved when they were a kid that just wasn't as prominent of a of a fixture in pop culture as it is now now i think the majority of pop culture is that right is that like people who grew up in the 80s and 90s being like, I loved that stuff as a kid. Now I want to watch it, but I want it to appeal to me as an adult. And if it can appeal to kids too, that, that's a nice uh, after effect. But really what we care about is appealing to people in their 30s and 40s <laughs> with these children's properties. And that's what this movie is. Like, that's just what this movie is. It's a movie about twisted, demented, horny perverts running around in leather, uh, making uh, the thinnest of veiled sexual innuendos, um, just terrorizing people. It's got like weird political commentary in it that is deeply uh, <laughs> relevant. Uh, they, like they make comments about the real world. Also, that feels very weird. When I rewatched this movie, I was like, oh, right. Like they're making reference to like Richard Nixon. And it's like, there's no way that Richard Nixon ever existed in this particular vision of the world. <laughs> But in any case, they really like they're going with uh, a lot of themes that just would go straight over uh, a kid's head. Also, I don't know if this was a talking point back in the 90s, but it was something that watching this movie now, this is actually the second time that I watched this movie this year. Uh, it's not a movie that I go back to over and over again, but it just by coincidence, I happened to watch it twice in one year. And so since this was a second time in like nine months, I was like, well, let me look at it through a different lens. 
how good of a Batman movie is this? Because as you guys know from listening to our earlier podcasts, I love this movie. It's one of my favorite Batman movies of all time, right? Features some of the most iconic characters in the history of this of the franchise, uh, beautifully rendered on screen. But I wanted to see like how good of a film is it for Batman? And it honestly is not that great of a film for Batman. The first hour of the movie basically has almost no Batman in it at all. Like I actually did a little bit of a clock watching thing this time, and I saw that the f- Batman doesn't appear on screen with spoken dialogue, right? There's a scene somewhat early on where there's like an action sequence uh, where he's there, but he doesn't say anything. He just like fights and then he goes away. His first line in the movie comes 36 minutes and 50 seconds into the film where he says, no, it's just his parents. I hope he finds them in reference to uh, the penguin. And then a couple of minutes later, he appears again and you see that he is investigating the penguin. But all of that isn't to serve as Bruce or his arc or Batman's arc in the film. It's just to give further exposition to Penguin. So Bruce's actual arc in the film doesn't start until 46 minutes into the movie when he meets Selina and they have that kind of meet cute, I guess. And like his arc from that point on will be this interesting relationship that he has with Selina, um, both as Batman and Catwoman and as Bruce and Selina. It's 46 minutes into a two-hour movie. That's wild. Like, that's this just isn't a Batman movie. And so I could imagine people who watched the first Batman were like, yes, this is great. We watched it for the for Jack Nicholson, and we watched it to get a more adult version of the Batman on screen. This is, I can't wait for more Batman. Like, this movie doesn't have any Batman in it. It's, it's wild for that first hour. Um, and then, obviously, he's around more after that. But I could see that being a, a bit of a, a flashpoint also in terms of reception. But I think now we're happy to see that because we get tons of movies about Batman. Who who needs a movie that's focused on Batman? His his villains are also super interesting. Let's get two iconic 90s ca- actors playing fantastic rogue gallery villains. Uh, throw in Christopher Walken, who everyone loves and who people, I think, love more now than they did in this particular moment in his career as well. Uh, and have a blast. So I think that it's just the context around this movie is totally different. The audience is very different and much more trained to be receptive to a movie like this. Uh, And yeah, it's just, the end of the day, it's incredibly memeable as well. So that's like a whole other thing. (laughs) But that's my theory. What's your theory? So I, there's a couple, there's a couple points that I want to look at, lock in on. Um, As far as the acceptance of the more adult themes in superhero movies, I'm actually going to put a bookmark in that and save that for another question that I'm going to ask later. Um, just very quickly on the take about Batman and Batman's arc and Batman not really speaking dialogue for a very long time and not very much at all. Um, you know, that's a lot. That's a, that is definitely a criticism that was out there at the time of this movie's release. And even in the movie's positive reception and revival now, it is still something that a lot of Batman fans criticize this movie for. Um there are and there there are a couple kind of Batman-esque qualities I also want to save later on for actually one of my criticisms of the movie. Um, but I will say this to that, and you know, I think that's fair about hey, you know, why isn't you know, we don't see too much of Batman. Why isn't he talking that much? I actually recently I watched the behind the scenes DVD uh sort of uh notes on this and tim burton was actually talking about this and he was and he's just his interpretation of of this character was like i don't really see him having these big long speeches and i really see this character is in the shadows a lot and so you could just now so people could disagree on that take of batman but i at least give it 
I at least give Burton this, and I and this is actually a big reason why I think Batman Returns is such a good movie is because it really is a commitment to Burton's vision of this character. But here's my take on all this, and I actually I want to bring it to modern day superhero movies and modern day comic book movies, and I, I am going to take this opportunity uh, to bash modern day superhero movies just a little bit because oh, no. for me, I I think I think the reason. People have been going back to Batman Returns and why there's been such an affection for it in recent years is because of how unique and vastly different it is from the 900 other comic book movies we get today. In which, just in my opinion, in which so many of them are just the same damn thing. Yes, we get gems every now and then, uh, but I'm sorry, you know, Ant-Man, Shazam, Aquaman, Doctor Strange, Black Adam, Suicide Squad, the Thor movies, Justice League, X-Men Apocalypse. These movies all run together. They all have that same generic movie score, manufactured beats, manufactured timed quips, uninspired, messy action scenes. You know, let's set up future films, yada, yada, yada. The trailer always has to use, you know, a remix of a classic rock song, which is so tired at this point. Although I do like the latest Ant-Man trailer. Uh, so and again, so I know I sound like old man on the lawn when I talk about that. And like I said, we've gotten recent gems. Matt Reeves is the Batman, Black Panther, Guardians of the Galaxy, Logan. But even those still have a lot of those generic superhero vibes you can't shake. For as good as a movie as the original Black Panther is, that third act is still very standard, whatever, action superhero fare. I'm sorry, there are CGI rhinos running around. Um, And I'll be fair, too. I'm going to be fair. I'll even throw in The Dark Knight Rises in there. For as much as I love it, there are a lot of been there, done that vibes, too. Um, so in my opinion, I think Batman Returns, more than any other superhero movie in existence, really represents a comic book movie that is truly unique, a true one of one. You know it is 100% uncompromised Tim Burton. And I know the cliche of visionary gets thrown around all the time, but Burton in his prime really was a unique director with a style all his own, very much like Wes Anderson is. And for me, Batman Returns is his best movie. The atmosphere, the score, the totally unhinged and deranged nature of the film at times. its There's nothing like it. And the reason why I think this movie holds this power over me is because I know we will never see something like this again in the comic book genre. You know, even with a movie like Joker, which I like in a movie we talked about on this podcast in the past, there, that's still very much like other films we've seen. Same thing for Logan. And please, don't get me wrong. And Logan was my favorite movie of 2017. Yeah, it's a Western. I've seen this story before. I mean, you really can't compare Batman Returns to anything a Western. else. <laughs> it's kind of, it's very much a Western. But look, you can, you can at least compare it to a Western. I really can't compare Batman Returns to anything else. And that's the point. And I think that's why it's gotten this revival. Because in a scene of franchise films that are all the same, Batman Returns is being appreciated for truly standing out. Um, but I actually, I want to transition from that into this. And because, Alex, we, we, we both just talked about our reasons for why there's been a revival for this film. And you, you've touched upon this a little bit, but I want to ask you this. You know, I've compared it to comic book movies of today. Um, I, I, I also just, I believe that I don't think a comic book movie like this would get made release today. Um, let me ask you this. If Batman Returns was released in 2022, how do you think it would get received? Well, would it be 
released as the sequel to Batman, like the movie that came out a couple years prior, starring Jack Nicholson and Michael Keaton? Or would it like how are we talking about it being released? I would say, yeah, think of it. So I know we got to We got to have we have to kind of go into like a weird time machine here. But think of it, you get the same movie and it is a sequel to 1989's Batman. And we're getting this type of style and this type of movie today. I I think that if it was if it was just the sequel to that movie, right, and it comes out now, I think that it would be received much better for all the reasons why I said that I think that it's aged well, right? I also think that it would be received well from a number of other angles, including what you were talking about earlier with the kind of auteur angle where people feel like a lot of these comic book movies lack a certain uh, specificity in the people behind the camera. And there's like a kind of sanitized quality to everything. There's a generic kind of quality to everything. I don't subscribe to that. I think that in your uh, last comment, you kind of merged together a ton of very different movies with very different vibes and just kind of like washed them with the same brush. But I, I think this certainly would stand uh, in distinction from that. I also think this movie is like, has a lot of interesting themes in terms of social outcasts and politics and gender and sexuality. And I think all of that would, I think, be more, the the modern audience would be more receptive to that stuff too. But I do think that like fan bros uh, online would probably be pretty mad about this movie because it's like, we want to see a Batman movie and what do we care about Catwoman? Why do we want to make a Catwoman movie? Just make a Catwoman movie, you know? And I think that that would be a big kind of backlash, uh, especially in response to this being a sequel, like the second movie out the gate in a new franchise. I think people would be pretty annoyed. A certain segment of people would be pretty annoyed about the lack of Batman and the fact that even when Batman is on screen, he's mostly there to service either the Catwoman and or Penguin arc, and he doesn't really have much to do. So I think that that would probably annoy a lot of people on the internet who get annoyed about things like that quite often. Um, and people might project some sort of political agenda onto Tim Burton as a result in a way that they wouldn't have done back then saying like, Oh, he only cares. He's trying to be woke by making Catwoman the center of the movie instead of Batman and look at the, and like all that kind of stuff. And I, I think that um, we were probably saved a lot of toxic uh, responses as well. Um, but I think in, that would be a small and passionate group of people responding to the movie. I think that most people, would respond to it better than they did today. But I I think that if this movie is released in in 2022, I almost like wonder if it could pull off a PG-13 rating or cuz it's just like so sexually explicit. Like and it's like like it's trying to do the sort of like cheeky James Bond thing where like you say it's a sexual innuendo and well like it'll go over a kids heads but like it really pushes the line on that really far. Like, if you think about, like, the sexual content of Deadpool, Deadpool is rated R mostly for the violence, not for the sexual Correct. content. And but, like, like, there is some... Yeah. It got a lot of credit for being like, oh, wow, look, there's, like, a, a scene where Deadpool gets pegged in a movie, you know, like, whatever. Like, this is so much more risque than anything happening there. <laughs> I also... But I, but there is, like... So, I think that Batman Returns, though, there is still, like, a little bit of a cartoonish vibe to it, whereas I guess, like, I guess the way I look at it is if the Batman, Matt Reeves is the Batman, can get a PG-13 rating, I think this probably could, um, because I think the Batman, I mean, it, it can be a very violent film at times, but I will say this, you know, this is something you were talking about earlier, I think as far as the acceptance of the adult themes, actually, like, I, as far as the concerned parents and the too dark and scary for kids stuff, 
Um, I don't think you would get a lot of those complaints today like you did in 92, because I think people and parents, you, you, and you've already said this, I think people and parents now understand that there's a lot of superhero movies out there that are strictly for adults. In 2009, we got Watchmen. You know, and everyone knew. Well, Watchmen was rated R, though, right? But didn't it get an R rating? Yes, cor- but, correct, correct. But there's also explicitly superhero movies just for kids now, like, you know, Into the Spider-Verse yes. or like Lego Batman right. or like right. the one like the Super Pet movie. So like there's also like that segmentation of the of the marketplace, which wasn't the case. Like when a Batman movie came out in 1982, it was really it was supposed to be as much for a four year old as it was for a 40 year old. And and that just is a kind of unsustainable thing i think in general and that certainly wouldn't be the case today for this movie in particular but i I think the comparison here is like actually going back to matt reeves the batman whereas i think if you got matt reeves the batman in 92 you get those same complaints about like this isn't a kid's movie like this is supposed to be batman you know yada 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 but it's like you know now matt reeves the batman comes out and you know everyone knows yeah it's batman but this is one that you don't take the kids to um so i I also think not I also think that there's a pretty good chance that Michelle Pfeiffer gets nominated for supporting actress at the Oscars. Yes. If this movie comes out now, like I mean, it I, looks like Angela Bassett is going to get that nomination for uh, for Wakanda Forever at this point. You know, we've gotten a series of Batman-related nominations over the last few years between the Joker and and then the other Joker. You know, so. I definitely think that she is, and she's such a, she's an Academy Award caliber actress doing an incredible job of just completely stealing the movie. And like, I think even more now than back then, like she's the thing that everyone is going to talk about having watched the movie. And I think she definitely could have, I don't think she would have won probably, but I think she could have definitely gotten a nomination out of it. I, so, all right. I, I somewhat agree with that. And I think that she would be in conversations to get an Oscar nomination um, if this movie came out in 2022. However, I I think my answer is going to surprise you a little bit in terms of how I think this movie would be received today, because here's the ironic part. I I think Batman Returns, despite the fact it's getting this nostalgic revival, as we've talked about, I, I think it actually does get a very similar reaction to what it got in 1992 if it was released today. Um. Because may, maybe a little better, but I think he, I think you will you would have pockets of people who praise the hell out of it. Um, there'd be a lot of passionate fans for this movie, but I think you're also going to get a lot of whiny critics out there who complain about how this movie was no fun. It's too dark, and I want to watch a Marvel film. Oh, but this movie is so much fun. Like I, I like I don't think this movie would get tagged as but dark think, at all in the modern concept of it. Like I don't like so adults in the in ter- terms of the kind of like sexuality and and the and the charisma on screen and stuff like that. Sure, but I don't think that and in. in in 2022, I don't think anybody watches this movie and says, wow, this is such a dark and gritty take on the superhero film. Like, it just isn't. It's very silly. It has it has a, it has a gang of circus clowns I know, but there's a, kidnapping but there's, babies I, and bringing them into the sewer. Like, it's a very cartoonish movie. But there's a weirdness factor to it that I still think is going – that would turn a lot of people off to the superhero genre. Like, so I, I agree with you on – so, like, I think Michelle Pfeiffer's performance gets praised, like, you, like how can you not? Like that, like, I think I think if this movie was released in 2022, the passionate fan base behind this movie could will Michelle Pfeiffer to an Academy Award nominated performance. But I want to talk about Danny, like Danny DeVito's performance. I don't know how it would get received. I think it might. I think there's a. I think, yes, there would be a lot of people who really like it. But honestly, 
I think it might get a similar reaction to Jesse Eisenberg's take on Lex Luthor. Yes, I know two very different things. I get it, but but I think that I think that the this one word would be used for both, which is weird. I think there'd be a lot of people turned off by it. Whereas I think now, when we look at it, you know, thirty years later, you know, Danny DeVito's performance is praised up and down. So yeah, I. I kind of think Batman Returns would be just as divisive as it was back then, as crazy as that sounds. I think it would be I think it would be right there in that 67 percent Rotten Tomato zone. Oh, I don't um, think so, because I think that you I think that you would get most of the comic book fans who like comic book movies would like this movie. I think that you would get a lot of the critics who can tend to be harsher on comic book movies would really like the craft of this movie, like the the production design, the cinematography, yes. the makeup, yes. the, the the tangible effects, like all of that stuff. I think that would really win over a lot of people who tend to be skeptical of comic book movies. And I think people would love the Danny DeVito character now. Like, I mean, it's such a politically uh, prescient uh, character uh, that I think honestly hits much harder in 2022 than it than it did in, in 1992. So I, I think that people would be okay. all over Danny DeVito in, in a good way. I think some would, but I think some would also be like, he's eating raw fish. And I think you would get the similar reaction to the Jesse Eisenberg, like um, Jolly Rancher thing. And but so, the Jesse like, Eisenberg like Jolly Rancher thing like, is like not, it's like a weird sort of like uh, affectation that feels very forced and superficial. The, the the eating raw fish thing is gross in a visceral way that like really is like silly and gross at the same time. That really informs his character and also just like feeds into the ethos of what this movie is doing. Whereas the the Jesse Eisenberg thing, it, I like his performance in that movie, but it, it is definitely running completely contrary to everything else that's happening in Dawn of Justice. Like this is totally informing what's happening in Batman Returns in a way that I think most people are smart enough to appreciate. Uh, I guess I'll just say it like this, is that I don't, so I don't see it as a safe superhero movie. Therefore, because it takes risks and chances, I think it would be divisive. I'll say this, though. I think if this movie came out in, like, 2010, right right in that sweet spot where people were more prone to darker versions of comic book movies, because I do see what you're saying, like, maybe it wouldn't be perceived as, like, such a, like a dark superhero movie like it was back then, but I do still think there are some pretty, you know, very grim and dark aspects of this movie. But I do think if it comes out in, like, 2010, right before that kind of, you know, Joss Whedon style of Avengers movies really took over, I think people would have really loved this a lot more. That, I think, was the time for Batman Returns. Right in that kind of, like, we're not ready to embrace shared universes yet era. Um, and so, again, I think, like, at the end of the day, I think you'd get a lot of appreciation. If this movie came out, came out in 2022, I... It would I, I guess I agree that it would be received a little bit better than 1992, but I still believe it would be very divisive. Um, but it would get a lot of appreciation from certain audiences and critics, um, which is why you could see things like, hey, we should be talking about Michelle Pfeiffer as an Academy nominated, you know, performance. Um, but yeah, again, now, I do think I want to I want to just okay. for a second give credit yes. where credit is due and say that one voting body in the year 1992 did nominate Michelle Pfeiffer for for best performance. Uh, do you want to take a guess as to what that voting body was, Dan? Okay, it was so obviously it was on the Oscars. Um, I feel so, man. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say it's not 
the Screen Actors Guild Awards because I feel like I would have known that. Like, I'll be very disappointed in myself if that's if that's it. Like, I feel like because I knew that Jack Nicholson got one when he played the Joker. What 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 body was it? It was the Kids' Choice Awards, Dan, and oh. I really respect them because they were ahead of their time. And you know what? We that is, were that the is kids. Funny. We were the kids then who now wanted to win an, uh, an Oscar for their performance. So consistency over the decades. That that is very interesting. That <laughs> Batman Returns is a kids' choice nominated movie because again, yes. I I think in 1992, and I still think again. I, yes, I know there's some cartoonish elements, but I still don't think it's a kids' movie today. Um, well, let's move on to one of the main reasons we actually decided to chat on Batman Returns today. Um, Alex, as you watch this movie, I'm sure you've noticed that it takes place at Christmas time. Um, yes. So let me just. Before, okay, but before I pose the main question here, uh, let, just allow me to just rant for just a minute, if I may, um, because this annoys me every year. For for whatever reason, people love to debate whether certain movies are Christmas movies. I don't get this fascination. I really don't. I mean, obvi- <laughs> obviously, listen, obviously the one that, that always comes up is Die Hard, okay? Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Here's the deal. I think Die Hard's a Christmas movie. But I also really don't care if you don't think it's a Christmas movie. It's just like people get so passionate about debating this topic. I don't get it, but whatever. Let's give the people what they want. We'll play the game here because while not as passionate as the Die Hard debate, I do think Batman Returns is a movie that also gets rolled into this Christmas debate. So, you know, we'll pose the question, is Batman Returns a Christmas movie? Because when I think of a Christmas movie... I know I think of baby carriages getting thrown into sewers, raw fish, zombie cats, penguins with missiles on their backs. Um, those are all right up there with Santa Claus and eggnog for me. But uh, all right, despite all those things, you know, I'll answer the question. Yeah, I do think Batman Returns is a cherished Christmas classic. Uh, I don't know. Let's take a look at the facts here. It opens on Christmas. It ends with Batman and Alfred wishing each other a Merry Christmas. Christmas is a crucial backdrop to the entire movie and is constantly referenced. Um, mistletoe is a huge symbol and a crucial plot point in the movie. You know, Alex, by the way, did you know that mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it? Um, but also, look, I mean, what's but a one kiss of the can major- be even more deadly if you mean it, Dan. Yeah, exactly. It's, it, it's good to know six episodes into this podcast, our timing is impeccable. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but also, look, you know, what, what's your themes of this movie? It's family. And yes, you could apply that theme to most movies, sure, but. I mean, Batman Returns is about characters, you know, searching for a family and protecting their families. Max Shrek, one of the one piece of humanity he has is that he cares deeply for his son Chip and will protect him at every turn. You have Bruce and Selina who want family but don't really know how to achieve it and are, of course, destined to be alone. And then Penguin, the true villain of the piece, never had a family or doesn't want anybody to have one. A real Grinch, if you will. So, yeah, for those reasons, I think it's a Christmas movie. And along, you know, along with It's a Wonderful Life, it's it's one of my favorites. So, you know, there's nothing like decking the halls at a scary abandoned zoo. Um, but, you know, listen, if you don't think Batman Returns is a Christmas movie, I, I really don't care. Alex, is Batman Returns a Christmas movie? Yeah, it absolutely is a Christmas movie, Dan, and and more of a Christmas movie than It's a Wonderful Life, I might add, because way more of a It's a Wonderful Life does not take place during Christmas. This whole movie takes place during Christmas, therefore it must be a Christmas movie. Um, but I definitely agree that themes are there, right? There is this kind of like, there's this great sort of uh, people, like 
weird loners desperately seeking connection during the holidays, I think is something that a lot of people mm. emotionally can can connect with uh, in the holiday season. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, we got multiple press conferences around gift giving and tree lightings and all of the, the paraphernalia related to Christmas time. I, for one, always assumed that this was a December release. And when I uh, recently found out that no, it was released in June, I was like, what? Like, it's totally bananas. Kind of like like, Iron Man 3, which is like a Christmas movie, but also released in the summer because, you know, they release these movies in the summer. Yes, exactly. It definitely it, it brings that to mind. But Iron Man three, at least, like that's a. I would never call Iron Man three a Christmas movie, even though it does take place during Christmas time, because that's such a small piece of the setting of that movie. And that movie has so many other things happening. This movie is so explicitly Christmas. Like it's constantly snowing. People are constantly going, getting presents, going to Christmas parties. It's like a very big part of this movie in both setting and the 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 themes like we've discussed. So. Yeah, it's it's wild that they released this in June. I'm sure that definitely contributed to the lower box office numbers. Not, nobody wants to watch a, a Yuletide carol in the middle of summer. That's uh, very dissonant. Um, but it was the right call for this movie um, in terms of at least the setting, if not the release date. Because it absolutely is a Christmas movie. I was so happy to get to watch it. It's right there on my list of, of favorite Christmas classics, including Eyes Wide Shut and Carol. I mean, I guess I'm sure, like, the studio is looking at it, and they're like, yeah, it's a Christmas movie, but, you know, at that time, in the early 90s, you know, you release your blockbusters in the summertime, and that's it. There's no debate. I think it like, was really I, I'm sure like... the thought of even releasing it in December <laughs> would have been, like, no way in hell. I don't think that, at, like, Tim Burton, after the 1980s that he had, and then making Batman, and it being this gigantic hit... I, no one, I think, has ever been more powerful in Hollywood than he was in that moment. And he said he wanted it to be set at Christmas. And they said, OK, fine. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. So I and I mean, that's definitely true in terms of his power in Hollywood. I they I famously the studio really just let him do his movie. I mean, this this is like like we talked about. It is a 100 percent Tim Burton movie. That's for sure. Yeah, there's uh, clearly right. no notes happening on screen. <laughs> well, I'm glad we were able to settle this uh, is Batman Returns or Christmas movie debate that I really could care less about. So but now as a Batman fan who loves Batman yes. so much, like, is this part of your Christmas tradition? Do you watch Batman Returns every year? Along with I the actually fire? do. Yes, I, I actually do watch it at this time every year. So, um, yeah. So, look, it's, you know, yes, I definitely associate with it um, at Christmas time. I'm going to watch it at Christmas time. Uh, it's just the, the debate of, you know, whether like I don't care if the consensus thinks it's a Christmas movie or not. I do. And so I'm going to watch it at Christmas time. It's like the same thing with Die Hard. Just, you know, everyone calm down. If other people don't think it's a Christmas movie, then there's no one stopping you from watching Die Hard at Christmas time. It's, it's you have you have the freedom to do so. So whatever. Well, OK, well, we both agree it's a Christmas movie. Great. Um, moving moving along all right we we've done all right we've done a lot of broad strokes questions about this movie let's let's get into some details so um alex i'm gonna put you on the spot first because uh well we have no other guests so it's got to be you batman returns <laughs> you love this movie um I do. if there was one now let me ask you this if there is one single element one single piece of this entire two-hour epic you had a single out as the biggest reason you love this movie what would it be 
It would be Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. It's like not even a question, not even a hard, not even a hard answer to give. Uh, there's tons of things that I love about this movie. I love the production design. I love the direction. I love the cinematography. I love the. I love Danny DeVito. I love. I, I with every viewing, I love Christopher Walken more in the role of Mar- Max Shrek. But nothing is better than uh, Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. It's like not even a debate. Uh, so it's a very good answer, and I knew you were going to have that answer. And uh, I'll say this: so I, in definitely, I would encourage people to go back and listen to our second episode of this podcast, where we did a ranking of the Bat uh, cinematic villains. Um, and both Danny DeVito's Penguin and Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman ranked very, very highly. In fact, I think they might have tied, if I remember correctly. I do um, believe so, they did, which was so, so fitting. Yeah, exactly. Very, very fitting. Um, so definitely go back and listen to that one. And yeah, I. I mean, both those characters are phenomenal and just great, great, great Batman villains. However, I'm going to so you mentioned some of these things. I'm going to cheat on my answer here because my answer is going to allow me to talk about multiple different pieces of the movie that I like. Um, (laughs) So one piece I will I'm going to sing out is just basically the filmmaking itself and all the elements that go into making great movies. So that is a cheat. (laughs) It's it's absolutely a cheat. I'm going to give you all those answers right now. I'm the host and I prepare for this. You know, so it's it's my podcast, so I can do whatever I want. You you get to set the uh, rules. That's fair. I, I, I. I'm pretty much just going to rattle off Oscar categories here because this really, but honestly, this really is a movie that makes you appreciate all the pieces that go into making a movie, you know, the production design, the art direction, the sets, whatever you want to call it. So of course, Anton first did the first movie, uh, which was equally incredible. Won an Oscar. Gotham city is epic. Uh, in this movie, it's Bo Welch. Um, by the way, if you go look at Bo Welch's IMDb, he's on a ton of movies, including the 2011 Thor film, uh, Gotham really? city, yeah, and I actually really, I 2011 Thor movies, you know, okay. Uh, I do really like the sets and the production design of that movie. It does look pretty, pretty damn good. Um, Gotham City here definitely looks different than it does in the first movie, but it is still epic for different reasons. Like this, it feels more confined, but the buildings are so magnetic they just tower over everything. I, I have uh, to but, say, I know you have a whole yes. list, but just to comment on that yeah. briefly. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, what I think is so incredible about the production design is that it literally, like, it feels like you're inside of a snow globe, right? Like, that's the, it has the claustrophobia and the picturesque quality of it, and, like, it's always snowing, and it just, like, it it really has that sort of, like, bizarre artifice, like, uncanny artifice of a snow globe, you know? Which is just so perfect for this, like, tightly contained story around these very bizarre, insular characters that we we're following. So I just love that kind of snow globe aesthetic. Uh, it's a it's a perfect depiction. Uh, and yes, as much as I do enjoy the Gotham City itself, uh, for me, when I when I always think of, when I think of this movie, it, it actually does go back to Penguin Sewer Lair. I've got I've got to say, though, because it just it looks so unnerving and disgusting and just literally like hell. But instead of being on fire, it's freezing and dank and filthy. It's awesome. Um, that that set always sticks out to me when i think about this movie and watch this film uh and then also like you compare it to shrek's office which looks like heaven you know overlooking gotham city with like these walls that are have these like giant gray pillows um just the 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 absolute opposite and then of course it makes sense that these characters would come together the movie looks great uh cinematography some of the camera work here penguin's hands on the sewer grate watching the tree lighting ceremony the way it circles around the birdcage when Penguin and Catwoman are talking, 
like the perspective of the watery grave as penguin explains his plan awesome this like the sound the sound in this movie watch the scene where the ice princess is tied up batman batman and catwin have their little fight the rhythm and the sound mixed in is so smooth you know calvin does that backflip unties the ice princess she the ice princess screams a little bit Calvin slams her whip down and then throws the chair at batman it's it is phenomenal filmmaking um of course, the Stan Winston Penguin makeup speaks for itself. That was nominated for an Oscar. Um, the Batman this year, you know, will probably also be nominated for an Oscar um, because of the Penguin. So, I, you know, whenever the Penguin is in a movie, you know, you're going to get an Oscar nod. So I get, you if know, if you so ever have the chance, if you ever yeah. have the chance to go to the Academy Museum in L.A., which is the Museum of Academy of Motion Pictures and Arts of Sciences, like the institution that gives out the Oscars every year. They have a whole room dedicated to kind of like sci-fi fantasy characters and different kinds of sets and and uh, like artifacts from this from the set and like different uh, makeup stuff and everything. And there's literally the the facial prosthetic that Danny DeVito wore as the penguin, just like sitting in a glass container, just that like it looks as if it's just floating in a column. Okay. It's incredible. So- I live in LA. I've been meaning to go and I haven't yet. Now, like after I record this podcast, I'm literally like, I'm jumping in my car and going. There's also, Um, they also have like a, it's, it's incredibly awesome. They also have the miniature of, uh, of the, um, like Wayne Manor that they used in the film. They have it there. Like you just like, you're like inches away from it. It's so cool. I'm going to talk about Wayne Manor in a little bit. So, uh, I'd also, okay. I'd also be remiss. I've got to mention this. Um, the score by Danny Elfman is absolutely and positively magnificent in this movie and does not get enough credit for me it's danny alfin's best score ever i i I don't care fine people people want to talk about spider-man whatever this is go listen to the batman return score it is magnificent um and then finally uh something i i really do appreciate when compared to movies today and in particular superhero movies that's right i'm gonna bash modern day superhero movies yet again Um, no dan put the bat down the runtime for Batman Returns, okay, two hours and six minutes. Thank you. Just, I want you to just think about this. So think about all the character, de- so think about all the character development in time that this movie takes with characters like Catwoman. You have a long stretch of the film where you see Selina come home, you get a sense of her lonely life. She goes back to the office, she discovers Shrek's plan, she gets thrown out the window, the cats revive her, the next scene she goes home again, it's a warped version of everything we just saw, then she flips out, she becomes Catwoman. That's what you call taking your time and really focusing on one single character. Um, also, just as far as the storytelling goes, I also I think I mentioned this in our first episode when we ranked the Batman films. You also have a stretch of the film where Bruce Wayne investigates Penguin for the first time, and it's very much just told visually. Bruce watches the Penguin on TV saving the mayor's baby, and at first he's sympathetic to him. But then what happens? He sees Shrek standing next to him. And this is great directing by Burton and great acting by Keaton. You see it in his face. Bruce thinks Shrek is shady. Hmm, what's that about? He then does his investigation on the circus. Hmm, an aquatic bird boy reports of, reports of missing children. Bruce looks concerned. Then he's driving by the Hall of Records. The score is pitch perfect, really eerie. He's just watching the penguin sitting there taking his notes. And Batman becomes even more concerned. And he's just he's putting the pieces together. And, you know, one of his few lines of dialogue that Batman has, you know, this is when he says, you know, if he knows who his parents are there's something else and that's just really good storytelling and this is maybe just like five minutes of screen time just very methodical takes the time it's just again i 
I know I sound like old man on the lawn, but it's just amazing to me. Like so much, so much today of comic book movie storytelling these days is so frantic and jumping from one thing to the next and 900 characters and these movies are running nearly three hours long. And yet this movie, which really takes its time with multiple characters, feels well paced and it's barely over two hours. So again, um, it's the filmmaking here. It's just, it's just better filmmaking. I'm sorry. Uh, so but that I, is just, yes. I fully agree with all of the points that you made about the patience that the Tim Burton has. What I will say is it's a lot easier to do that in a film when you've decided to just not give your main character uh, an arc of any kind. <laughs> then you really it really does open up the possibilities in terms of giving the supporting cast uh, room to grow and to show off all of the uh, the interesting layers that they have and building those character arcs very thoughtfully uh because there you can't really say that about uh batman or bruce wayne in this movie at all like he literally has no arc like what is his arc he falls in love with selena that's really selena's arc not his arc like he just really doesn't have any major he is a supporting character in this film and a pretty marginalized supporting character and i think that that's a strength but i think that that's why i think if you also gave him his own arc in this film that's an extra 20 minutes of the movie and now you're at the runtime of most modern superhero movies. Well, I think, I think what you're bringing up is a very, very common complaint that people have of the Tim Burton Batman movies is that they just don't feel like they feel like Batman is a background character. He's, you know, an observer or whatever you want to say, and he doesn't really go through an arc. I, I thought, I think he does go through an arc. Um, now, if you want to say, like, mm, I just I don't think it's told as well as the other two characters, I guess that's fair. I mean, I think his arc is basically like he is. Uh, this is something we kind of talked about when we talked about the 1989 film. I think Batman's arc in this movie is he feels like an obligation to be Batman. And this interpretation, he's looking for a way to get out of being Batman and to find happiness outside of Batman. Um, now I know a lot of people don't really like that interpretation, but I think in the context of this world, um, and I think the way Keaton plays it, uh, it intrigues me, uh, because that, and also like, they also like do delve into the scene with Batman mask of the phantasm as well. Uh, he's also, he also is, he's making this vow to his parents, but he's also looking for a way out and he does find an answer to that and he does find happiness, but it all goes away. So then he's like, now I'm fully committing to this Batman. I think it's the same thing here. Uh, in that he's he's obligated to be Batman, but I think also internally he's looking for a way out. I think he does see Selena Kyle as that way out, but it doesn't work out. And then he's just like, OK, well, I'm just going to go back to committing to being Batman. That's interesting. I feel like that's not really in the movie. I don't think that he's looking for a way out. I think he's looking for he, someone who understands him in Selena and that duality but at the end that of the he film, has. He takes off, but he takes off his like he's willing to be like, I think him taking off his mask at the end. And by the way, just. Side note, as we talk about this, I think the end and the climax of Batman Returns is fantastic. I think it's a very, oh, yeah. very, it's a powerful climax. Um, But I think him taking off his mask is saying, like, I'm I'm done with this. Let's let's just go home. Let's get out of here. Let's take Trek to jail and we're done. And I think that is actually him saying, like, I'm willing to give this up for you. Um, I think that that is 
Michael Keaton not wanting to act that incredibly emotional moment with Aww. the mask on his face. <laughs> I don't think there's any justification for it in the actual film. There, it, I think that that's just a pure kind of filmmaking necessity. I, I don't think, I mean, you could try to read into that with what you said. I think that's the best reading, the textual reading you can give it. But I don't think that that really lines up to what he's been saying in the movies prior to that. Like he's he's attracted to this woman because he feels like he she understands who he is he he explains that his last relationship didn't work out not because she could he couldn't give up the piece of him but that he didn't want to right that he has this duality to him and he needs someone who can understand that duality he doesn't seem like a person who's trying to get rid of that other part of who he is so that all right so definitely get that but here's so let me ask you this then because i think that there's a there's a big wrinkle to all this and I'm guessing your response to this is just going to be like, well, they didn't really think it out too much. But let's be honest, he takes off his mask in front of Shrek. So and the plan is to take Shrek to jail. Shrek's going to I mean, once he blurts out who Batman is, it's over. So I think that's a conscious decision on Bruce Wayne's part to be like, this is like, this is it. I think in that moment, he's more just saying, like, I want you to connect to me as a person so that way you really take seriously what I'm saying to you. Like, let's forget about Shrek. Let's forget about the craziness that's going on. Just you, me, you, Selena, me, Bruce, let's real, like, let's have a real conversation. Like, I think that's the, the reason why they're trying to do that. And, I mean, I think that there's been other instances in other Batman uh, films and TV shows where someone does learn his identity and tries to use it against him and it's like no one believes them because it's like well Bruce Wayne obviously isn't Batman you're crazy so I think that might be part of his his thinking that like he feels like he could get away with taking his mask off in that moment because Shrek is so uh, marged like delegitimized in that by na- by that point in the film that like who cares if he knows no one's going to believe him um, but I think also like it's just literally a trope of the superhero genre up until like the last 10 years like every single climactic like finale comes up with an excuse to take the mask off of their hero because the actor wants to be able to actually act and not have to act through a mask like it happens in like almost every single superhero movie of that era and of the next era honestly as well when it when a character has a mask they take that mask off for the climactic moment so that way they can actually I get act that but I think so like that's really for, why it's happening <laughs> i don't know i think it's for cinematic reasons i think it's a very i think it's a also just the way the score sings up i think it's a very very good movie moment though still i'll say i'll ask you this though let me so I just I just bashed modern day superhero movies for being way too long. Right. And so now your response was, well, hey, if they gave Batman an arc, you know, then it would have been just as long as those movies. So I'm being unfair. Let me ask you this. So you're obviously a big fan of Batman Returns. Do you think this movie would have been better or worse if they did take more time to also delve into an arc for Batman? Or do you think it works by actually giving the villains the, the two arcs? Well, I think it's hard to say because we don't know what they would do with that arc, right? Like, there's, it obviously could have been, uh, like, there, there's a lot of different areas that they could have gone uh, that could have been terrible decision. But I think ultimately, like, an arc for a character is in a film helps you feel connected to that that character. It helps you, like, the audience is going on a journey with that character. We're understanding their perspective better. Uh, we're identifying with them, and so we could feel more, more emotional emotionally invested in where that character is by the end of the film and i think that if 
we felt that way towards Bruce and Batman in those final moments, I do think that those moments would hit harder. Right now, the way we're watching it, we're more invested in what how Shrek gets out of it than what Batman does, right? Because it's, it's really, we've spent a lot more time with him. We understand him better as a character. This isn't a complaint of mine, though. Like, I'm not, I don't think that this is necessarily a flaw of the movie, uh, because I think the movie works well as it is. But I do think that if we're talking about how could you make it better, if we actually felt emotionally invested in the character that we're watching, I think that we that would make it feel better. I think that so I I get what you're saying. However, I'll say and this is this is actually an extension of our conversation that we had a little bit on 89 Batman back in our first episode. And I'm sure there's going to be an 89 Batman episode down the line on this podcast too, more in depth. But I guess I guess I just give more credit to just Keaton's performance in general and that I do feel emotionally invested in that character because I mean he's great and because he's doing all the work though like this isn't overridden that's my thing it doesn't need to be overridden Um, but he's doing all the work just in his performance like he's not getting anything to go off of so I think that it's honestly a compliment to him it's an incredible compliment to him that it the movie works as well as it does because he is really asked to bring everything on his own. It's like the audience has some buy-in based on the first film that you've watched, and everything else is just Keaton in the moment making, like, bringing that that the embodiment of a person that really isn't on 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 the on the page at all, you know. Well, I think so. I think that these, and as much as I like the '89 Batman, I really do. Like, I ranked it as my third favorite Batman movie, and I stand by it. I think that the criticisms about this interpretation of Batman are more legitimate in that movie. I think that they're improved and a lot better here. And I just I think that you're I think that you're underselling some of the the written dialogue and written scenes for Keaton's Bruce Wayne. He has a lot like, yes, the dialogue is not a lot. But when he speaks, I think they're very, very good lines. I mean, the last line of this film that he speaks and sums up the movie is really, really good and really poignant. You know, Merry Christmas, Alfred. Goodwill towards men. And women. And then it just syncs up. And I think that's a that's a great Batman line and a great way to sum up the movie. And it's from his perspective. I'll say this, though. This is it's a it's a actually a good transition into my next question here, because I want to talk about what are just very we talked about kind of like what our favorite elements of the movie are. I want to ask you, what's your very specific favorite moment in the film? But here's my moment that I'm going to give you. And this is actually part of why I am invested in the Keaton Batman character. It's it's honestly because of this one scene in the whole movie. Um, and it is legitimately, it might be one of my favorite Batman scenes ever in a motion picture. Um, as much as I love the climax of this movie, which is very powerful, like I said, between Bruce and Selina at Penguin's Lair. If I had to pick one moment, you know, one image from this film that is my absolute favorite from Batman Returns, um, I've got to go with, and it's no dialogue, it's all visual, it is when you get the shot of Wayne Manor and it's when the bat signal is ignited for the first time. And there's Bruce brooding alone, dark in his study, just waiting for the bat signal to come on. And it does. He comes to life and the entire scene is just lit and shot flawlessly. The score ramps up and blares. And for me, that is the ultimate Batman moment, period. That scene gives me chills every time. And it's actually, it's just like that one scene alone is like, I'm with this guy. Like I, I'm with Michael Keaton's Batman. Um, also, Alex doesn't know this, but I do the same thing before every Batman by the numbers podcast. I, I sit alone in my dark study at my desk, just waiting for that Skype call. 
Um, but this is, it's also, I think that these type of like epic Batman moments, it's, it's very reminiscent of the shot mask of the phantasm when he holds the mask for the first time. Uh, but for me, it's this moment in Batman returns. It is always the first thing I think of whenever I think of Batman and it's from Batman returns. Um, also quick side note, uh, when I was a kid, I always imagined that Bruce Wayne was sitting there thinking about what to get Alfred for Christmas. No joke. That's really what I thought. Um, uh, pretty sure that's it, not pretty sure that's not what he's thinking about. Yeah, it's uh, sweet of you to think that he ever thinks about what Alfred would want at oh, any point in time. I'm sure I'm sure he gets <laughs> Alfred very nice Christmas gifts every year. But that is so that is my favorite moment in Batman Returns. So I'm going to ask you, you be more. So you can't just say Michelle Fiverr's performance. If there's one scene, one moment in Batman Returns that is your favorite, what would that be? So it is it is hard. So you got to do like a, a list of 12 things that you learned about the movie. So let me let me let me give a little bit Make of your, uh, runners up. OK, so number one, I think the sequence that I like best is the kind of the bookend scene of the of the Selena apartment. Uh, where you go, where you you follow her home, and you see like the whole kind of like what her life is like. You listen to her answering machine. You get so much of a sense of what her personality is, what she wants, what she what she hates about herself, what her as aspirations are. That apartment is so like incredibly well like set designed and 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 art designed, and it, it's just like this incredible kind of window into a world. And it's so funny, and she's so charismatic in in that movie uh, in that scene. And then and then you go back to that a few scenes later after she has her transformation into Catwoman. And it's such a fun subversion of the expectation that you have based on that first scene. So that, that is a sequence more than a single scene, but I think it's so well done. And, and like, she's just so like unhinged by the end of it. Um, I think that the scene where uh, Penguin is introduced as a mayoral candidate to his staff um, is absurd. It's so sick and dark and, and ridiculous. And just like, I, so, I mean, Danny DeVito is just in the pocket like he's never been. And it's just so, and he bite the, the punctuation of him biting the guy's nose off. And then like everybody just being like, well, you know, he's the candidate. And they all go back to work. <laughs> She's like way too real. Um, <laughs> but I think that my favorite, my favorite, and also the climax I think is really good. The confrontation between Bruce and Selena in the, in the cave is really good but i think that the the single best scene of the film is definitely when bruce and selena are at the party together and they realize who each other is uh because i think that that is the one true moment of human connection that you get between these two characters on screen in a real way um and i think that pfeiffer and keaton play it so great where there's this genuine kind of uh, tenderness to their relationship in that moment and intrigue and romance and seduction and and Pfeiffer is just like you really believe that she feels out of control in a way that scares her and excites her and she just plays all of that so brilliantly and it you really and it and it ends on this great like ellipses right because they end where it's like well we should go outside and you wonder like well what if they were allowed to just go outside and talk what right. would have happened but instead penguin comes in and blows everything up and they get separated and then the whole rest of the movie goes from there so i i love that scene i think that is like the heart of the film in a lot of ways um and so that, i think that would have to be my favorite it's a great pick and it's also um it's a really good scene too because it's not overwritten uh and it's also it's it's it is really a textbook example of great screenwriting um i mean like honestly i mean we joked about the whole mistletoe line but it was it, it's a great callback and that's what all great screenplays do it's you know 
they say those lines to each other as Batman and Catwoman, and then it gets flipped as Bruce Wayne, Selena Kyle. And it's a great callback, but it also serves as a plot point. And then that's how they figure out who each other are. It's, it's a really, really good scene. Um, also, talk- shout out yes. to the penguin funeral scene, because that is just so absurd. And I just like love that they commit to that. And it's just so such like bonkers stuff that I just like such like I just don't know how that they were allowed to do this in a movie. <laughs> it's, I, yeah. And it, that's another good one. And I, I mentioned this, um, I, I think, in our villains podcast. But it's just like it's this very weird, like odd like sympathy for the character that you know you couldn't have uh he was you know he's just such a such a detestable person but it's like batman even looks at him as he's you know going underwater it's like yep you know uh this guy this guy this guy had a rough life uh and he just kind of because it's like that's what really hits me about that scene is like even batman is just watching like in awe and he's just like what you know what what am i doing as these penguins are just delivering him you know, penguin to his like water. Back to the it sea. Is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 yeah. It's a, and, and again, I just, I'm going to, and you know what? He loved those penguins and those penguins great. loved him. And you got to yeah. respect that. That was a real, right. that was a real bond that they had. And, uh, and that's kind of beautiful, you know? Uh, there's some really good, uh, yeah, there's some really good, uh, behind the scenes stuff, um, just on the penguins as well. Uh, if you, if you, if you want to go to IMDB trivia on the Batman returns page, there's a lot of really, really good stuff about, uh, the penguins and about how, like, when they were using the penguins, like they had security guards, you know, keeping them safe and everything. It's it's crazy. The production of this movie was was out of this world. Um, I would definitely recommend people go to the IMDb page and just read the trivia facts. It's really interesting stuff. All right, we phrased that we've done we've done a lot of positive, some criticisms here. Um, but you know, no movie is perfect. Uh, other than Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice, of course. Uh, but let's uh perfectly we, yeah, terrible. <laughs> We've delved into some criticisms, but I do want to actually harken back for me a little bit on Batman because I really I have I have one major note and really one big criticism of this film. Um, And it's what many detractors of this film have as well. Uh, And it's about Batman's one rule. Right. You know, Batman does doesn't kill. That's a big part of his character. So here's my take on this. Uh, This isn't. This isn't a that's different from the comic books, you know, fanboy complaint. Uh, it's I'm I'm always I'm very much in support of a director's own vision and interpretation of a character. And if it works in the context of the story, then fine, change it. Um, obviously, now, obviously, in the Dark Knight trilogy, the one rule element is important, not just because it's in the comic books, but because it's a it's a crucial part of Batman's character in the story overall, in particular in the Dark Knight, of course. My my problem with Batman killing in Batman Returns is that it's just very inconsistent in the context of the story. And the scene in particular that I'm going to bring up here, and look, this has been brought up several times. I'm not breaking any new ground here with this take, but it is a negative that people bring up that I very much agree with. The scene we're talking about is, of course, when he puts the bomb on the big dude from the circus gang and he blows up and Batman smiles as he does it. Now, here's my problem. At the end of the movie, and also kind of at the masquerade ball, his whole speech to Selena Kyle is very much about, hey, you know, don't kill Shrek, you know, don't, don't succumb to being a killer. Forget it. Let's just take him to the police and get out of here. So it's like he's on this big moral high ground. But earlier in the movie, we just saw Batman kill a dude and smile about it. Um, you could argue, well, this is Batman trying to convince Selena Kyle, you know, don't be like me. You know, vengeance won't heal you. You know, this is actually a theme that they do bring back in Batman Forever when he's talking to Robin. 
Uh, but they contradict themselves yet again when back then actually kind of sort of basically kills Two-Face. Um, more inconsistencies in this in this iteration of Batman. They're just all over the place. Um, so I don't know that it is a problem for me because maybe if Batman didn't smile and he just did it and, you know, you see remorse or something later, maybe it justifies his speech a little bit more to sling at the end. But for a movie where I've praised the filmmaking a lot, um, I think this was just an example of the filmmakers doing a ha ha. Look at this little silly comic book moment when he does that uh, to the big strong guy. So it is it's disappointing to see such a lazy scene not really thought out in a movie that I think is otherwise superb filmmaking and extremely well thought out otherwise. So that that's my beef with Batman Returns. Um, and I think that's probably one of the biggest criticism that this movie gets. Alex, I'll pose it to you. You know, is that is that the biggest negative for you in Batman Returns? Or are there other criticisms that stick out to you more um, as a sore thumb? Well, I think I've I've aired my criticisms of the movie Batman's at this off. point. Yeah, <laughs> but um, did do we know for sure that that bomb blew him up? Like, we know that the bomb blew up, but did he die because of it? We never really see that. The bomb was on him, and it there was a massive explosion. But it's like it's a bomb from a circus clown who lives in the sewer. Like, I mean, maybe it just stunned him. You know, that's I, I feel like we could have we could go either way on that. Um, <laughs> I I mostly took that scene as the the smiling in particular. I don't think he's smiling that the guy is dying. He's smiling because the guy very arrogantly was like, "Haha, I got you," and then he's proud of himself for out thinking him and like subverting that guy's arrogance. And he's like, "Oh, you think you're so clever? Actually, I'm the clever one." And I turned it around on you. Uh, that's I, I think that that's the smile. I don't think it's like a vindictive sort of like, I'm glad you're dead uh, kind of smile. Um, but I guess he does kill him as a result of that action, um, unless, you know, th- th- at least that's what the film would let us believe. But um, I weirdly just interpreted that mostly as a as a reference to the Adam West movie where it's like, how do you get rid of a bomb? And it's like, well, the, the way this, this Batman gets rid of a bomb is uh, he puts it on his opponent and then, then his opponent blows up, which I guess, yeah, I guess that that's not great. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, it, that's not something that's ever really occurred to me as being a problem. Uh, but I can hear, I hear you uh, in terms of the, but I do think that there's a difference between like in the moment acting in self-defense and that ending up getting someone killed. Right. It really was like he was had the bomb on him and the way that he got away with it away from dying was putting the bomb on the other guy versus what Selena is doing in the movie, which is a calculated plan yeah. to assassinate someone that she doesn't like. Like that's those are different moral questions, even if they do both result in a death. So I, I think that we have to cut the film a little slack in terms of that. I guess you could I guess you could kind of say the same thing too about Batman forever ironically in that you know listen two faces got a gun to all three of them at the end and he's got to get out of it but I don't I, I think you know what it is with this criticism for me with Batman turns is I give the movie so much credit and I think it's just so good that I just don't think just for me it was not a well thought out moment um all righty so I want to end the discussion like this and this will still involve Batman returns but more about Batman movies in general uh, we've seen many interpretations of Batman. In fact, based on the movies we've covered so far in this podcast, we've actually seen seven different takes, which is crazy. The Adam West version, the so Burton Schumacher, Burton Schumacher, which will count as one iteration, even though it's really not, but it's the same series. Um, Mask of the Phantasm, Kevin Conroy. Bale, obviously, in the Dark Knight trilogy. The Lego Batman version. Batfleck. Um, and of course, most recently, Robert Pattinson. 
Um, but all right, I'm going to boil this question down to the big three, though. So, Alex, you can pick only one of these Batman movies to exist. You have one pick. What movie would you most like to see? Tim Burton's Batman 3 with Keaton, Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight 4 with Bale, or Matt Reeves' The Batman 2 with Robert Pattinson? Well, so I would definitely say that the one that I would pick the least would be the Christian Bale Batman 4, because I feel like we've we fully explored Christopher Nolan's world, right? Like, that's one that truly it feels like, like it or don't like it, how it ended. It feels like it had a, a definitive ending. And it really feels like we explored every aspect of that world that could have been interesting before it ended. Uh, you can't say that about the other two, right? Because because the Batman, like Tim Burton's third Batman movie, really feels like a missed opportunity in a lot of ways. Not just because the Schumacher stuff ends up coming out and not really meeting expectations in a similar way and being a whole other thing that feels really distinct from what Tim Burton was doing. Also just because it felt like he had more to say in this world, if not necessarily with this character in particular. And I would have just loved to see what his version of a lot of these things that we've seen in other areas could have been. Like imagine a scarecrow with directed by Tim Burton, right? Like, that would be cool. Um, but I got to, like, lean into recency bias a little bit, I guess, and say the Matt Reeves Batman, because, like, that was an incredible film, an incredible experience, and it's all potential from here, right? Like, we ha we at least got two Batman movies from from Burton. Like, we, this is one, one shot at the apple right now, to mix metaphors, <laughs> um, with the bat, with the Pattinson Batman movies. And uh, I want to see more corners of the world. It's just getting started. There's so much left to see, even if that movie was incredibly long. Uh, and, and I'm excited to see where things go. So I'm going to go with Matt Reeves. I So I had a feeling you'd say that one. Um, I So I'm going to put that one third. And it's not because it's not because I'm not excited to see that next movie, which I am. Uh, I think it's just because it's so new. And it's like the legend of this Batman version hasn't grown yet. Um, so this this question is actually a very easy answer for me. I'll say this. If they announce tomorrow that Christopher Nolan was coming back for a fourth Batman movie and that he had a story that he was really excited about, I would no doubt be dancing in the streets of Los Angeles, you know, like in La La Land. Don't get me wrong. Um, and but I but however, the reason why that's not going to be my pick is because of the reasons you just said. Um, I'm I'm putting that number two just because I would trust Nolan that if he had a story he was excited about, then I'd get really, really excited about what was in store. However, uh, I do. But like you, I feel fulfilled in that the Dark Knight trilogy is a complete story. Burton's Batman is my pick, like by far. Um, Burton's Batman, even though his two movies are like kind of standalone movies like you said, they feel like it feels like unfinished business. Uh, and I'm going to take it. I'm not even just going to I'm going to take this beyond Batman. Honestly, if there was one movie I could will into existence, it would be Burton's Batman three. Um, for years, it was Star Wars Episode seven, a movie which we got. Uh, but now but now taking its throne is Burton's Batman three. Uh, when Tim Burton was still like kind of involved in doing the third Batman, you know, obviously it was heavily rumored that we would have seen Billy D. Williams come to fruition as Two-Face, of course. Uh, but also it was heavily rumored that it would have been Robin Williams as the Riddler. I, I just you mentioned Scarecrow, which would have been another good Burton Batman villain. But to see what Burton would have done with those villains in this world 
how can you not wonder? Um, now, I know that we will see Michael Keaton back as Batman next year in The Flash. So will the Burton Batman continue a little bit? I guess. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly curious to see what this is, but, you know, all I'm expecting with that is really just a nice nostalgic kick, and that's really it. Um, you know, do I think any of the Batman Returns tone or vibe will be infused into the Flash movie? No, I don't. And, ba- and based on all the changes that are happening at DC, um, even if there were more plans to continue Keaton's Batman, I mean... Who knows? I'm pretty sure those plans are probably going to be scrapped for now. I, yeah, you know, the state of DC on film, that is a discussion for another day for sure. Uh, I just think that, you know, I, I have a strong feeling that this movie, this Flash movie, it could very well be the last time we see Michael Keaton back as Batman. I'm sure it'll be very respectful. I'm sure Keaton gave it his all, but it's not, you know, we're not talking about a real, uh, Batman three here, you know, and it's, you know, Burton's not even really involved, not really, he's not involved in it at all. So, um, you know, again, that's Tim Burton's Batman three would be the one again, is something I would just, I would love to see, but you know, it's going to happen. Um, all righty. Would you, so, let me ask you this. Yes, would you want to yes. see Tim Burton direct Michael Keaton and Batman beyond, or would you want Michael Keaton to be paired with a different director if that was going to happen, which which was rumored for a while. It seems like that was definitely going to happen, and now it's been canceled, sadly. Uh, but if that was if that was back on the table, would you want Tim Burton to be the one behind the camera for that, or would you prefer someone else, like Tim, if, like twenty twenty two Tim Burton? Right. Um. Yeah. Would if 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 you're gonna see if you're gonna see Michael Keaton back as Batman in his own Batman movie. Uh, I would want it. I would want them to just, let's just do it. Let's just commit. I mean, look, they're doing a fit. Listen, they're doing a fifth Indiana Jones movie. But so Steven Spielberg isn't not? directing that. True. Uh, but you do have a very, and look, I, I don't know if that movie's going to be any good or not, but you do have a very, very capable director, James Mangold. Um, so, right, but so that's I what I'm would, saying. Like, do you think that you would, if he was gonna take the role again in the in like the actual reality, like, would you want Tim Burton to be attached, or would you want to see what a different director would do with the material with Keaton? It's uh, it's 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 this is a total cop out answer, but it's gotta. I would have to. I would have to really think about the director that would be taking the helm at that. I don't. You know what? You know why I'm struggling with this question. It honestly, it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast. When I talked about, I, I really think, and look, I, you know, I think Tim Burton's best days are behind him, but like in his prime, Burton was a master. He really was. And I really do truly think that he was a one of one. And I don't know. I don't know if someone is really capable of replicating his vision. I don't know what director that would be. You know, if I had another day or two to think about it, maybe I'd come up with someone. But I guess to answer your but I guess to answer your question, I think if you're going to do another Michael Keaton full on solo Batman movie, I think you got to get Tim Burton back and let's 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 give it a shot. Um, well, and, and you know really what? I mean, fully commit to it. Tim Burton hot off one of the biggest successes of his True. entire career yeah, Wednesday yeah, absolutely. on Netflix. Yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. It could maybe it could happen. Listen, if if they want to do it and they had a story, let's let's go for it. Yes, I but it because it, it does. It's it's more about just the fascination of what would he do with some of these other villains? Um, and again, I, I referenced the behind the scenes stuff in the DVD. You know, you could tell that 
he, he wanted he did it's, it goes back to what you're saying he did have more stories that i think he really did want to tell but it just it is what it is you know the movie like we talked about there was a there was too much of a downtick the reaction just wasn't good um and the rest is history as we talked about for better or worse um but batman returns is a great movie batman returns happy anniversary uh and as we press on with the future of this podcast it certainly will not be the last time we discuss Tim Burton's masterpiece. I love this movie. Uh, but that's going to do it. And that's going to do it for the Batman by the Numbers podcast in 2022. We'll be back in 2023 with more great rankings episodes, more great bat topics. Uh, and as I just mentioned, you know, with all that's happening with DC on film, we'll have plenty to talk about, I think, in the world of Batman in the coming year. That's for sure. Um, Alex, it's plug time. Where can people find you? What do you have to plug? Well, you can certainly go on to thepopbreak.com and click on the podcast tab to follow all of the podcasts that I am producing and, and uh, hosting over there in my role as podcast editor. Uh, that includes uh, the December episode of Bill versus the MCU, uh, where we have completed our rewatch of the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe through its first four phases. And we, me and my co-host Bill Bodkin uh, settled in uh, for an epic uh, award show that we titled The Feige's, uh, where we gave out awards for the the, hi- the highlights and lowlights of that experience. It, it's a lot of fun. I hope that you guys, even if you didn't follow us all the way through the journey, I think you should definitely check out that episode as a nice summation of the project. That was really good. And we got more episodes planned for uh, 2023 and beyond. So uh, you'll have to listen to that episode to find out what is in store for the future of the show. I also uh, host TV Break uh, on uh, Pop Break TV. Uh, our December episode of that was our, our gear and review episode, which is a lot of fun. We talked about all the most important uh, streaming services and uh, news stories and uh, new series that came out this year. Uh, so definitely check in on that as well. Um, my film podcast, Cinema Joe's, at Cinema Joe's on Twitter. Uh, this month, we reviewed Avatar, The Way of Water, uh, talking about a an auteur making blockbuster films like no one else can. James Cameron uh, did it again. Uh, and you can listen to me and my co-hosts uh, and listen to uh, how deeply and profoundly moved I was by that movie in a way that I was very unexpected. Uh, I was not prepared for that. I, I was No one was more skeptical of Avatar sequels than me uh, up until the moment that the movie started, and it just blew me away. So I want to listen to that. Uh, you can listen to that um, episode that comes out uh, by the time you're listening to this. It should be out by now. So definitely check that out as well. All right. Well, you can find me uh, on Twitter at D Cohen writer. And uh, speaking of Avatar, the way of water, um, also be sure to check out my weekly column at the pop my uh, weekly box office prediction columns where I wildly over predicted Avatar's opening weekend. Um, I think I had it like 172 million. Uh, I think it came in around 134 domestically. However, I'm sure in typical James Cameron fashion, uh avatar the way of water will probably just continue to make 35 million dollars every weekend for like the next nine years or something so <laughs> that is that yeah. like that's what titanic did that's what the first avatar did so um yeah and so you know I, what it, yes. it underperformed domestically but it still made almost 500 million dollars in its opening weekend worldwide so you know avatar the way of water will be just fine nobody is crying <laughs> for avatar the way of water um but yeah we can uh we can discuss that further in the avatar by the numbers podcast um <laughs> all righty well uh thanks everyone for listening and uh just like tim burton 
committed to his vision of Batman 100%. I'm going to commit to my bit uh, 100% at the end of this podcast. Good luck, everyone. Happy New Year.